Okay. Welcome to the Social Impact Pulse, a podcast where we aim to cultivate intimate conversations with entrepreneurs working at the intersection of the sustainable livelihoods and lifestyle sectors. Each episode is a no-filter conversation with entrepreneurs where we dig deep into the values they hold dear and how that molds and shapes the social impact they strive for through their organizations. In this episode, we are joined by Sarah Sternberg, founder of Songa Designs, a socially conscious lifestyle brand that works with artisan producers in Rwanda. We hear about three moments that made her proud, the meaning behind the name Songa Designs, how she measures impact by the number of artisans and weavers she can serve by creating financial independence for them, and the things that keep her up at night, including production capacity and the opportunity to consistently train more women. On with the show. Hi, my name is Sarah Sternberg, and I am the founder of Sangha Designs. We work with weavers and artisans and seamstresses in Rwanda in East Africa. I founded this brand with my co-founder, Ellie Cates, who is the head designer for Sangha as well. Um, And this all came after uh, doing some volunteer work back in 2010. And we really saw the value and the quality of the um, work the women were doing when we worked with them. So we decided we'd like to start a brand with them where we could could reach um, or show basically uh, showcase their talents worldwide. We've since then grown from uh, woven jewelry into these beautiful handbags that are made out of banana leaf and also increase the quality of our customers. And we sell all over the world um, and also have partners now with major retailers, which is really exciting. We are now at the point where we're pretty much um, having it ran by the artisans, which is exactly how we wanted it to grow, uh, where it is basically the the women, the artisans are basically doing um, the business. And Ellie and I are basically the people who are given the bridge to a world and global marketplace uh, for them to be able to sell um, worldwide. Sarah, could you share with us three moments when being the founder of Songa Designs made you proud? Only three. Oh my gosh. Okay. So Yes, three definitely come to mind right away. So one um, was the Jacqueline handbag. This was our bestseller. It still is our bestseller. Um, she is a, an artisan, uh, a banana leaf weaver. And we basically said in the beginning, like, we're going to really set the foundation of these designs, but it's really going to be up to you if you want to have this a sustainable business to help us and, and just come up with designs yourself. So uh, we have uh, one of our master weavers, Jacqueline, um, still a master weaver to this day, works with us. And she created this um, handbag, a beautiful um, uh, banana leaf handbag that sold out immediately. Um, So that was a huge um, milestone for us for us because A, it showed us that, yes, they can definitely come up with their own designs. But B, it also Jacqueline was like a. Um, inspiration for all the other artisans saying like, Hey, you know what, if you sit down, you really can come up with your own designs. And um, it's really, uh, I could just see how proud Jacqueline was for, you know, of herself and even her fellow, the women in her cooperative. So that was really exciting. A second, um, this just happened last year with the whole pandemic, <laughs> but we have always instilled in the women we work with, like uh, independence and business and financial um, minded um, independence as well. And with um, the global pandemic in 2020, everything shut down, like 
everything, even Rwanda's in the provinces, they couldn't even travel across borders in the in their own country. So I received a text message. Now the women can start. (laughs) Now they they have access to uh, WhatsApp and texting me. And they said, you know, we can't do business, but we really have an idea for you. Um, We would like to do a, a local venture. And they came to me with um, a pig venture and I can't, I can't remember oh, a cow. Um, and so anyways, long story short, we, I talked about it with my other um, colleagues who are Rwandan and uh, we decided the pig venture was a lot more sustainable and it was a lot more affordable, but also uh, much more quickly. It would it be able to be, um, uh, you know, they could work on it instead of just trying to bring cows and raising cows and all that stuff. So it was awesome and it worked. And we now have uh, three different pig ventures in our three major cooperatives. Um, I've seen many pictures of pregnant pigs, which is great. <laughs> um, and it just, again, I was really proud of them because before back in the day, 10 years ago, you know, they would have been like, Oh, we don't have, we have a problem, but that was it. But now it's like, Hey, I mean, and this is definitely with our, um, it, what we try to instill with them over the years, like come to me with a problem, but also a solution. And they absolutely did that. So that was, that's great. And even to this day, it also made me realize that not everybody in the cooperatives want to be, be weavers or seamstresses or make things, you know, some of them want to do uh, livestock and that's where they are. That's where their um, talents are. And they want to make money from doing that. And it's easier because the market's right there. They don't have to ship things across the world. So it's a really nice um, balance. Um, And then also we saw that it works. So anyways, we're going to continue doing more pig ventures. But um, I think that was a really... um, I, I was really proud of them because they were able to come to me with their problem. And then also they came up with their own solution. Um, And then another thing that really helped me... Uh, realize how much of a positive impact just doing global business uh, for the women was their ability to become very talented negotiators with pricing. Um, again, in the back in the day, it would always be like, here's the price and they would just take it. You know, now these days, again, they are very informed about what the competitors are, what the marketplace is, the materials, because in Rwanda, a lot of the cooperatives are specialized in certain materials like banana leaf or uh, um, uh, seamstresses and the fabric or cow horn, all that stuff. So when they come to me with pricing, and I already know what the pricing is, because I def- I go around and I price around all the cooperatives. And then if I get pushback, I'll say, okay, so tell me, why do you think that your price should be this rather than this? And then we have a really actually um, informative conversation and productive rather than, you know, someone coming in and saying, hey, this is the price or, um, you know, or them saying, we're not going to do it. And that's it. So now it's much more of a um, equal footing. And that's great because sometimes, you know, the, the artisans, they prove their case. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. Or, oh, I didn't realize it's rainy season in, you know, early May. And that's why the, the material prices are higher, you know? So, or, or then I'll tell them, oh, well, you know, there's another cooperative that just opened up down the, down the village, you know, a couple of miles away from you. So there is a little bit more of a price competition for you to consider. Um, but it's really collaborative. Um, and that's, I'm just proud of them because now we all know in myself too, because I still have to stay, stay um, up with the pricing in, um, in the villages, but it's, it's, it's a collaboration and I appreciate that. Could you tell us a little bit more about the cooperative structure with which you work in Rwanda? How does that work? 
Yeah. So in Rwanda, it's called the, the Rwandan Cooperative Association. So the RCA, they basically govern all cooperatives and the cooperatives are their own businesses. So it's not like my like Sangha could go in and own a cooperative. That's not how it works. It's illegal. Um, and it's really good because it really also protects the, the um, women's businesses. So in each cooperative and they each each of their cooperative business, there are leaders. And then there's also the, the artisans. Um, so how it works is that I also have my team, um, a country director. His name is Ezekiel. He is a very, very well respected in the in the handicraft industry in Rwanda itself. And he also has access to a lot of other cooperatives beyond my initial five cooperatives that I started with. So that's great because sometimes we have bigger orders and that requires obviously more women. And he has um, the knowledge of who to reach out to. Um, it's also you need to know some of the sometimes some of the cooperatives are not as as skilled as the other as other cooperatives. So to that's kind of adds a little bit to sometimes production uh, bottlenecks because sometimes you know there's song is not the only people ordering from these artisans. You know there's a lot of other co or sorry other companies other retailers that are going in and, and ordering from the women as well. So we have to keep that in mind as well. Whereas you know sometimes these women they also know that they are the skilled cooperative. So their prices go higher, which completely yeah, understand, you know, but then again, we also have to um, monitor our own pipeline so that we can also plan our, our orders with them. So that's basically how it works. But Sangha now is really ran by my Rwandan team. And then the women as well, because they work directly with Ezekiel. Um, and then I'm really kind of the bridge to the global marketplace. So I'm the bridge to the people who want to buy in Europe or the people um, in the major retailers here in the U.S. Um, and so that's and that's great because that's really what I want my role to be is more of like a facilitator. Um, but also the women, that's where the real story and the heart of Sangha is, is these women who have these amazing talents. And over the last decade, I've been able to see that I'm not the only one who's seen this, who notices that and recognizes that there's a lot of other major retailers coming in and placing orders and even like setting up plants or not plants, but, you know, workshops um, in Rwanda as well. So um, and I also appreciate the fact that Rwanda protects the works or the cooperatives in the way that they do, because it, it could be if it, that didn't happen, it could be really right for a lot of people just come in, take over. And um, so that protects them as well. What's the meaning behind the name Songa? Yes, I love this story because so it was uh, the we called it the dream team. It was me. It's me, Ellie, who's my co-founder and the head designer, and then Jado. And Jado was when we were volunteers, Ellie and I. He was our our head translator. He also he eventually just became. He's a family member. I call him my brother now. But um, way back in 2010, we were on this long ride to one of the cooperatives, and we were like, okay, Jay. We need a, a word that's going to be easy for Westerners to pronounce because it's just, you know, just so it can be a brand that we can brand as well. And so anyway, so Sangha is short for a Sangha Mbele, which means uh, the path forward. So we just took Sangha, which also, you know, they can still, if, even if I just said Sangha to the women, they would know that that means the path forward. So we thought that was perfect. Like that definitely embodies, uh, even at the time, um, we wanted to have a path forward for all, all of us, not, not just the team that started the, the business, but also the women and the artisans. And even today, you know, there's a whole new meaning to the path forward. The path forward now is global marketplaces, um, new retailers that are um, national in 
in the US. Um, even I have influencers and Instagram influencers, which I mean, I don't know if they're influencers really, but you know, they have a lot of followers, but they call, they contact me and they're like, Oh, we really love your Orenda handbag, you know? So again, that's another path forward to a market that I would have never thought of. Um, and I just remember this one woman, she, she uh, lives in Greece and she had the most beautiful photos of our products in Greece. And so anyway, so yeah, so Sangha means a path forward and it is Swahili. Um, and that's one of the main um, languages in that Eastern Africa region. It's Swahili and Kinyawanda and even French. I don't speak any of them, unfortunately. <laughs> I try, but I, you know, it's almost butchering them. <laughs> so Sarah, how do you cultivate impact? Yeah, so... I measure impact by the number of people I can serve in the Sangha business by creating financial independence for women in and weavers and artisans in Rwanda. Um, and I think one of the most beautiful things that I saw, which is reminded me like, this is why I do what I do, is we were talking with one of the uh, weavers in um, Kigali and her name was Jane. And this is a direct quote from her. She said, when I see the nice work I did with Sangha, I feel happy. When I meet a lady who is dressed nicely, I think of myself, Jane, and my contribution to making her look good. I feel my ability to do something, a woman who can do something. I feel very happy because I see that I can do something that is beautiful and it makes people look beautiful. And I just love that because it's just the, the resonance of like, we help just collectively as women, we help other women see the beauty that they sometimes might, might not see in themselves. And that's really the impact that I would love as my, you know, legacy, not that I'm going anywhere, but you know, when, when Sangha moves on and the women um, run the business on their own, this quote from Jane is always something that really embodies why we are here. And speaking of legacy, how would you like Sangha to be remembered? So I would like Sangha to be remembered as um, a place that women and weavers and people in villages who not really ever been exposed beyond their maybe five miles around their own home, that they can make an impact. And they can also, while they're making an impact, not only does it help their families and, and they are able to send their kids to school and, and even buy nice clothes and wear, you know, get whatever the like, last time I visited, I never, I didn't recognize any of the women cause they all had different hair. And I was like, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. You all look so beautiful. What? This is awesome. Um, but back to answering the question. So just the confidence that comes from that, because I always tell the women like, and also myself, but I always say, you know, when you gain confidence and knowledge, nobody can ever take that away from you. So if Sangha, you know, ever went away, um, we close down, they can just pick up, you know, the next day and still make the same handbags or create designs and, and innovate no matter what, because they already have that skill and that knowledge as a foundation. They also know how more now how to work with international clients um, and just knowing like being uh, standing in their worth. Because I have seen in my nonprofit days where people do come in and they tell them what their worth is. And I just think that's not how business and, you know, commerce works, right? There is certainly, you know, you have to know exactly how prices are, you know, how they come to. And so my, I guess my, I would want it to be in the obituary that these are sassy women. They're smart. They know exactly what their worth is. They know how to price their, their products. Um, and they're absolutely beautiful. So 
And on top of that, you know, they're they're independent. And that's what it comes down to. What is it that keeps you up at night? The number one, this is um, timely, is production capacity, because we are definitely reaching a point where, A, this is great because most there's more orders going into a lot of these cooperatives. But B, um, the skill has not caught up to the the amount of order or the number of orders that are being placed. Right. So um, I I were I don't worry. I just try to think of how what can we do as a solution. It's going to be it's going to involve a lot more training. It's going to involve a lot more um, just of a consistent training as well. Because I think one of the things that Sangha could do better is consistently train uh, more uh, women. Because I've also seen that we've been with these the, a lot of these cooperatives for so long that some of the artisans, they get older. So then their eyesight goes down. And so their their skill moves to a different set, which is like going out and finding materials, going out and finding, you know, the banana leaf and the sisal plants and all that stuff rather than the actual weaving. And then you have the younger artisans coming into the cooperative. And that's great but they're not as skilled as the ones who have lost, you know, aging and losing their eyesight. So that's definitely a couple of things where I feel that we could do a lot better and also just have that process and system in place where there's constant training and um, helping the new artisans who want to come in and learn how to weave or sew or whatever they want their skill set to be. And then helping the ones who are older and, you know, with whatever um, disabilities that come with aging, we still can support them and have them feel um, wanted and and, and needed in the cooperatives, but also not slow down on the production. so that that's something that I balance because I I don't want this to ever be well at least for Sangha ever become a mass produced like you know line you know this is the beauty of Sangha we are the beauty of handmade things take time the the weaving takes time the skill and the quality of the handbags and the baskets we make takes time and I will always make sure as long as I'm in charge that we're not going to turn into the this you know uh, factory setting type model right so that's one of the things. Um, that I'm becoming better at is saying, you know what, if I have a, a big retailer coming to me, I have to be really good and say, here, I can set your expectations. It might not meet your needs because obviously they have, you know, they're seasonal. They need to get their products up in time and, and on the shelves and all that stuff. So it's hard for me to say no. <laughs> but if the reason is because we are at max capacity, I feel like that is a good problem to have. And something that is definitely not insurmountable. It's work. It's definitely, uh, you know, can be worked with. Um, but that's something that I, I, I think about a lot. So do you see the next generation of artisans and weavers within the cooperatives or are they looking at other careers? That is a great question, because I would say five years ago, it would be easier because that the next generation of artisans would come into the cooperatives because they mainly are following their mom and they, you know, they grew up in the cooperatives. <laughs> like I've, I teach them when they're babies and they're walking around while I'm teaching like how to do calculus or whatever, you know, not calculus, but you know, so they definitely, that's their environment. That's what they know. So naturally they'll become artisans or they'll become the next weaver. I have also seen, um, I have my own Rwandan family and 
I've seen their girls grow up and now they're early 20s and now they're all over in what Instagram and all that other stuff. So I feel like there might be a group of uh, next generation young people who are going to go towards the technology and go towards like, yeah, there's way more beyond Rwanda. And yeah, that's great. And then there's also going to be the other type of uh, generation of next generation of artisans who are like, this is, this is what I like. I like being in the villages. I like being home. Um, I want to follow in my mom's footsteps. Um, so I would say today, if, when you're asking me this question today, I would say there's going to be a little bit of a balance against people who want to go out and just, you know, do their own thing and, you know, whatever. And then people who also want to stay within the cooperative and, and uh, become the next artisan in their family. What would you do if you could be unreasonable and there was nothing holding you back? Well, I mean, this is so Sangha answer, but why high speed Wi-Fi in all of the work, the workshops in the villages. <laughs> and I don't I say that knowing that there is a double edged sword there. Yes, the artisans will be, definitely be able to become really running their own business, taking in orders from everywhere around the world, distribution, all that stuff. But then there's also corruption of the Internet and all this extra new overflow of information. Anyways, I'm totally over thinking that question. But yes, that would be huge because part of the bottleneck with even now is that I'll get, we just did an order for this um, client of ours. And she's like, she called me, she goes, Sarah, we got a bunch of red baskets and we asked for blue. I was like, oh, okay. You know, so I went back to my team, Ezekiel, and he goes, oh yeah, the women couldn't do blue. So we did red. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. Okay. You know, and he's like, Oh, but I sent that to you. I, I sent in, but it was on WhatsApp and it's not the best platform to have major order information going back and forth. <laughs> and I mean, the real, the, the client was really cool about it, but she's like, let's just not have that happen again type thing. But that is definitely a barrier. It's just like, when you're, you, you know, you have to adapt to what is available. And even Rwanda, it's definitely like they've been known as a, the Singapore of Africa or East Africa, you know, like they are, it's a very developed country. Like I, today I go, I don't even recognize the downtown because it's so developed. The streets are now developed. There's actually stoplights that actually work, you know, I mean, high rises and everything. So even with a, a, um, a progressive nation as Rwanda, you're still, you're still, especially as when I'm working with women still deep in the villages, there's still going to be that technology challenge. And so that's why I say, you know, Wi-Fi everywhere. <laughs> Is there anything else? I, I, I'm so biased against the, I mean, for the way, like, yeah, have more people come to Rwanda, like see the beauty of the countryside and the, the gorillas, of course, and um, just the simplicity of life and just seeing like exactly the, the, um, the transformation of taking a leaf that you would think is a piece is a weed and having it being transformed into this beautiful handbag. I mean, that would be amazing. Um, and then just again, having the, the distribution, because that's another big issue is not in Rwanda's landlocked. So getting goods out of there is a challenge and it's also very expensive and it also takes a lot of time. So if I was unreasonable, I would have Elon Musk come in, make us a spaceship that can go right into the heart of Af East Africa, 
pick up all that good stuff and then go and have them drop it off all over the world. That would be amazing. The ladies would be like, what is going on? Many thanks for listening to this episode of the Social Impact Pulse. We hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, do check out our accompanying animation created for this episode. The Social Impact Pulse is a project of the Artisan Gateway and soon to be launched, Their Stories Be Told.